Would you turn in your Bibles to our Old Testament reading, which is Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 4 through 6. If you have a blue church Bible, that's uh, page 158. As we have God's word open before us, will you join me in our prayer for illumination? Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we ask that you might shed your light and your truth abroad in our hearts. Would you add to the reading and the preaching of your word, the blessing of your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to open our eyes and open our ears, that we might hear and believe and respond as your faithful people. Bless your word. May it be a double-edged sword for our good and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here now, Deuteronomy 15, verses 4 through 6. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of your, the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. Now turn to our New Testament reading, our sermon passage this morning. Picks up that theme of God's people in the world and God's provision, and therefore the ability that God gives us to provide for needs in the church. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and we're reading through chapter 5, verse 11. And here now again, the living word of the living God. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes. For so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. 
Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Well, may God add blessing and the illumination of his spirit to this his word. You can be seated. Again, good morning. Glad to have you with us this morning. And right off the bat, I want you to know that pastors realize that sermons that touch in any way upon giving can make people uncomfortable. Some people get uncomfortable because they've seen churches that act hypocritically with money. Some get uncomfortable because they know their own financial reality. They know that they've given all that they can and they have no capacity to give anymore. And so sermons about giving can really seem like a waste of time. Some get uncomfortable simply because they feel guilty about giving. Well, this passage is about giving. At least that's the occasion for all the things that happen in this narrative. But this passage goes much deeper than simply to be a sermon about giving. And I want, what I want you to see this morning is that this is good news for all of us. God is gracious to work in us and to make us generous. If you are visiting this morning, we preach straight through books of the Bible and we trust God for the message. And so I can promise you this sermon has nothing to do with the fact that we're getting closer to the end of the year. So we think about uh, budgets and things like that. It just happened to be this Sunday. This sermon is part of our series through the book of Acts. It's really just the next passage. Uh, so to catch up on Acts so far, in chapters 1 through 4, Luke, who is the author, who was a Greek-speaking physician, who had become a Christian and became a historian for the church, picked up the story of Jesus that he started in his gospel. The gospel of Luke starts the story of Jesus, continues all the way through Jesus' crucifixion, his rising from the dead, his appearance to the disciples. And in Acts, that story picks up again. And Jesus makes his, the disciples his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends to heaven, and the Holy Spirit descends to the earth to fill that small early church on the day of Pentecost. That's where we've been. We've seen after Pentecost, where the Spirit fills the, the church, the apostles are empowered to preach the gospel, to preach about Jesus, and also to heal in the name of Jesus. And they faced opposition. We've seen that the church continues to grow as more and more people believe and are added to their number. Well, have you ever heard of a SWOT analysis? Organizations sometimes use a SWOT analysis for planning. SWOT stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And one way to think about these chapters, these early chapters of Acts, is to consider the first and the last of that, the strengths and the threats that the early church faced. And so we see the strengths is the fact that thousands of people have now believed. Thousands of people have responded to the gospel message and put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's a great strength. There are also threats. They've had opposition to their message from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. That is a, a grave threat. But those are both external, both people who respond and people who oppose. That's outside of the church. And this week, we'll look internally at the church. And even internally, inside the church itself, there are strengths and there are threats. The strengths are that there's great generosity. You can see that in these verses. 
There's faithful preaching. There's rising godly leaders like Barnabas. Those are great strengths. But there are also things like counterfeit generosity and dishonesty and a lack of the fear of the Lord in those who profess to be Christians. And that comes to us in people like Ananias and Sapphira. And those are threats to the church and to its mission. But over both the strengths and the threats, God is sovereign. And he works, even in this passage, for his glory and for the good of his church. And I think the main message of this passage is not primarily about giving. Here is the main message. It comes from the description of David in the Old Testament. It's this, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And because God sees and knows our hearts, we need his grace. And we need reverent fear of the Lord. You can see this passage has bookends on either side. There's descriptions of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. In the passage leading up to this one, the passage after this one, the Holy Spirit is at work. In chapter 4, verse 31, the church was filled again with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5, verse 12, there are signs and wonders that are continuing evidence of the Holy Spirit. And this passage is about the power of the Holy Spirit, both to fill the church with grace and to protect the church from hypocrisy and from a lack of integrity. And so the Holy Spirit is at work both to bring great grace to the church that day and to bring great reverent fear of the Lord to his people. The apostles preached about Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Christians were transformed by the power of the the Holy Spirit. And Peter, you can see, knew the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira by the power of the Holy Spirit. And where the Spirit of God is at work to apply the work of Jesus, there will be great grace and reverent fear of the Lord. And so we start with God's grace. This verses 32 to 37 of chapter 4 show us, they show us a vivid picture of the Holy Spirit's transforming work in the church. In spite of all the differences among the believers who were gathered that day, they were one. They were one body. As verse 32 puts it, they were of one heart and soul. And this oneness has multiple dimensions. They were one in their belief. They confessed the same truth about Jesus, but they were also one in their love. They loved one another. They viewed their fellow believers as family. If you are a Christian, then you are spiritual family with every other Christian. And that's something we try to make a reality in the local church, but also beyond the local church. We want believers to know that they are related through faith in Jesus Christ to every other believer. Paul captures this in Ephesians 4. He says there that Christians should walk together with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. This is one people of God. The one people united in faith to Jesus Christ. And this is not just a vague unity, that they say, oh yeah, we're, we're a unified body, and then nothing actually comes of it. This is actually very concrete. The believers express their love 
for one another in generosity and in cheerful provision for one another's needs. As you read this, you might think, is this some ancient form of communism or socialism? And no, it's not. You can see that each person continues to own private property and they can do whatever they want with it. It's not for the church or for any centralized authority to say, you must do this. This is all voluntary. Look at how Peter speaks to Ananias in chapter 5, verse 4. It's not that property ownership has changed. They still own property. Instead, property owners have been changed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Everyone views their property as something that they have to help brothers and sisters in Christ. So what is money for? Being frugal is good. Being a good steward is good. But sometimes we need reminders that the point of money and possessions is not to end up at the end of life having spent as little as possible. It's not to end up with the most you possibly can at the very end. Money is for a purpose. God gives it to us to invest through giving, through generosity, uh, through being good stewards of what he blesses us with. The church in Acts 4 was open-handed. They were open-handed with what the Lord had given them. And wealth and possessions are great blessings because they increase our ability to bless others with them. Now, I disagree with John Wesley on a number of fairly important things, but I really like his memorable way of stating a Christian view of wealth. Here's what he said about money for believers. He said, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. We see this exact thing happening in Acts 4. Those who had a lot saw needs, and so they sold what they had in order to provide for those needs. They had earned all they could, they had saved all they could, and now they were giving all they could. Well, in that time, there was no online giving, there were no checks, no credit cards. Those who gave sold houses or land, and they brought the proceeds and laid them at the feet of the apostles. And this pattern is one of the reasons that we have an offering in our worship services. This seems to be a setting of public worship. The giving done here is giving as an act of worship. Laying the money at the apostles' feet was a signal that what was being given was not being given to the apostles, but to God. It was dedicated to a holy purpose. Now, here's a side note, some foreshadowing. That idea of things that are dedicated to the Lord are, is very important for what comes later in this story, and especially when it comes to Ananias and Sapphira. As believers gave generously, the early church fulfilled the ideal for God's people that we read in Deuteronomy 15. There will be no poor among you. Everyone will have what they need through the generosity of their brothers and sisters. When the Lord blesses his people, they in turn have the ability to bless the church, to bless those in need through their giving. We can see that the Holy Spirit was at work to transform God's people because this way of giving that you see in the early church is totally and radically different from anyone else in the Roman Empire at the time. There were Roman and Greek authors who said it's good to be generous. There was a, a spirit of generosity in the Roman world at the time, but it was totally different. If you read those authors, you can see them praise generosity, but often for them, generosity means giving what you have to friends who are your social equals. And implied in giving generously for them was the idea that if you give to those who have a need at a certain point, then they'll owe you something. 
They'll be able to help you out along the way sometime in the future. Well, what we see in Acts 4 and 5 is totally different. This is wealthy people giving to the poor, who were not their social equals, but who were their family in Christ. And they give freely. They don't give expecting anything in return. You can see it's not, it's not bad to give, for example, to an organization and have them put a brick on a wall with your name on it. I don't think that's sinful. There are some who give very generously <clears throat> and will have buildings named after them. Uh, and that's not sinful, but it is important to realize that Christian generosity is not done for any other reason but the love of God and the love of our neighbors. This goes back to, to Jesus' own teaching. In Mark 10, verses 42 and 45, here's what Jesus says. He calls the disciples to him and says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This totally shifts our understanding of generosity because it comes from Jesus himself. This passage gives us the clue that we need for where this kind of radical giving, radical generosity comes from in the early church. Jesus is the definition of generosity. And you can see the apostles in verse 33 are preaching about Jesus. They're bearing witness to the resurrection. And people who know Jesus will always become radically generous because Jesus is radically generous. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 puts it, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And Jesus has done everything for you and me. He was condemned for our sins, though he was innocent. He gives us his righteousness and gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. We have everything that we need for this life and for eternity. And when that fact actually goes from our head to our hearts, it makes us open-handed with our possessions and our money. And we begin to express our love for others in concrete generosity. That's what we see happening in the early church in Acts 4. Luke shows us this grace-fueled generosity in the church by introducing a key leader and a main character for everything that comes in Acts, that is Joseph, who you probably know better by the nickname the apostles gave him, of Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Barnabas was a prosperous Levite who was a native of Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. Barnabas uh, later on, we'll see, receives Paul with open arms, even though many other Christians were very suspicious of one who used to persecute them. And he would go on to join on a missionary journey with Paul. But we see this first introduction to Barnabas shows that he is a son of encouragement through generous and cheerful financial giving. I think it's intentional that Barnabas is presented as the reverse of Judas. If you remember back in Acts 1, Judas is his Sorry fate is recounted. What did Judas do? He betrayed Jesus for money, received money for betraying Jesus. He bought a field with it, and later he dies. Well, Barnabas 
exemplified faithfulness to Jesus. He didn't buy a field, he sold a field. And he turned the money over to the apostles. He laid at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is the reverse of Judas. And Barnabas is a great example of Christian generosity. Being captured by the love of God in Christ makes us, like Barnabas, makes us open-handed with our possessions. The National Christian Foundation estimates that if every Christian in America were to tie, that is, give 10% of their income, there would be an additional 165 billion, that's billion with a B, available for the mission of the church. That would include church ministry fully funded, diaconal mercy ministry needs that were fully met, hungry people fed, overseas missions fully funded. Well, as it stands right now, the average Christian gives about 2.5% of their income. That's 2019 numbers. Even during the Great Depression, Christians gave more than that. 3.3% was the average. So you can see that even just a small increase in giving would make a huge difference to the church's ability to carry out our God-given mission. Now apply that to the local church level. I know it can make people uncomfortable to think about giving, but the same idea does apply. If everyone who considers this church to be the church where their membership is or their church home, if everyone who was in that category were to tithe, this church's mission would be fully funded. But that kind of generosity begins with an important realization. God does not want your money. God does not need your money. He can give everything that's needed apart from our giving. God wants you. God wants your heart. And a heart that's been transformed by the grace of God ultimately becomes a generous and giving heart. But God wants you. Well, I really like reading Consumer Reports magazine for many reasons. It's just a fun thing to find the best products in different categories. One thing I like is the side-by-side -side comparison that you have in that magazine. Whether you're looking for a car or a toaster or a computer, you can compare side-by-side -side all the different important key information to know to find the best thing for what you need. Well, this is kind of a side-by-side -side comparison that we have in Act. We've seen Barnabas compared to Judas, and now Barnabas is compared side-by-side -side with Ananias. Barnabas is the reverse Judas, but you can think of Ananias as Judas 2.0. Ananias wanted to come off like the real thing, a real generous Christian without being the real thing. Ananias wanted to receive all the benefits of being perceived as generous without being fully generous. You can see from Peter's questioning of Sapphira that they could have freely and voluntarily given any amount that they wanted to from selling their land. They could have even sold the land and kept it all for themselves, and that would not have necessarily been sinful. The problem is that they presented their partial gift as a whole gift. They presented part of what they received for selling the land as all of what they received for selling the land and said, we're giving everything to the Lord but that wasn't actually true. They kept back for themselves some of what they had received. As one commentator puts it, the desire for human praise is more important to them than being faithful to God. They were not even really guilty of a lack of generosity. Instead, they were guilty of dishonesty, of trying to lie to the Holy Spirit. 
Now, this is a deficiency of reverent fear of the Lord. It shows in Ananias and Sapphira a lack of true transforming grace. You can see this on multiple levels. Luke views this event of Ananias and Sapphira and their lying as an attempted spiritual invasion of the church by the powers of darkness. That's why Peter is so blunt when he confronts Ananias. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? This is especially striking because you need to realize so far in Acts, every time filling has been talked about, it's been filling with the Holy Spirit. But now Ananias has been filled, his heart has been filled with the evil one, with Satan. This is a satanic counterstrike on the church. But Ananias and Sapphira are not just this spiritual warfare example. They are also examples of a constant problem faced by Christians. That is deceitful hearts when it comes to possessions and money. In verse 5, Peter describes what Ananias had done as to keep back for himself some of the proceeds. If you look that word up in the Old Testament, when God's people keep back devoted things to themselves, that is a great sin. You can look at Joshua 7 and see the sin of Achan. Achan let Achan's sin of keeping back things that were devoted to the Lord for himself, taking what should have been given to God and keeping some for himself, led to Israel's defeat in battle and led ultimately to his death by stoning. This is a serious matter for things that belong to the Lord to be kept back from him. This is a heart issue with Ananias and Sapphira. Well, we don't know this for sure, but it's possible that before this, this day, they came to the apostles and publicly vowed, or maybe in modern terms we might say they pledged to sell property and to give all the proceeds to the church. That would have marked all the proceeds that they received as fully devoted to the Lord. But maybe they got a better uh, asking price than they thought. Maybe they got more for that property than they intended to get and thought, well, I don't think it would be so bad for us to keep back some for ourselves. You can see, based on the conversation that's recorded in Acts 5, this was intentional deception that Ananias and Sapphira entered into, fully cooperating with one another. Just like Achan in the Old Testament, Ananias and Sapphira were both killed in the just judgment of the Lord. You can see how intense things are in this passage. Peter says to Ananias, Satan has filled your heart so that you would lie to the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5, verse 4, he says, you've lied to God. So here's a side note. If you ever need proof that the Holy Spirit is also fully God, this is a good place to go to because he's referred to as the Holy Spirit in uh, verse 3 and then as God at the end of verse 4. He tells Sapphira, you have tested the Spirit of the Lord through your deception. God takes sin seriously. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's not as if God has taken a chill pill on sin in the New Testament. He is intense in his judgment of sin in the Old Testament and intense in his judgment of sin in the New Testament. He is still a God of justice. Our God is a consuming fire. Sin will be punished. That's true. But God may defer the fullness of his justice and the fullness of, the, of his judgment for a time, but that won't be forever. Just as there is one God who is the same 
both in the Old and New Testament. So there's one people of God, and God's people are capable of sinning against him in the Old and the New, as we've seen with Achan and Ananias. They were targets of temptation and a satanic invasion of the church. And Peter knew this was a risk for all believers. He would later tell Christians to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now you can know that if you are in Christ by faith, you will never be cast out. God uh, does not always judge sin the way that he judged Ananias and Sapphira, but he does take sin seriously. Even if you are a believer, you can face God's discipline and you and I can displease him for things that the whole world has thought of as not a big deal. Things the world no longer thinks of as sin. There was an English Puritan named Richard Rogers who was out horseback riding one day with a friend of his who was an aristocrat. And the friend was kind of making fun of Richard Rogers for being too precise in his theology and the way that he lived his life. And he asked, what makes you so precise? And Rogers answered with this. He said, oh, sir, I serve a precise God. God is precise. He does not let sin go unpunished. Giving reveals the heart. Now, lack of giving can betray our hearts. That's certainly true. That's what we see here. But giving generously, at least outwardly, but doing so for the wrong reasons can also betray our hearts. That's true for all sins. You can come across to others as loving and kind and gracious, and yet inside you can be filled with anger and bitterness. You can profess your confidence in God, and yet underneath that you can be consumed all the time with fear and worry. You can be an avid churchgoer. You can outwardly seem to be a Christian, and yet you can be guilty of hard-hearted unbelief. But here's what Ananias and Sapphira's sad story shows us. God is not surprised by that. It never takes him by surprise. He knows your heart. And that's the deeper truth of this passage. God sees and knows you. He sees and knows our hearts. Here's a motto of John Calvin's. He said this, My heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. That's what God wants. God wants our hearts. It starts at the heart Did God want Ananias and Sapphira's money or did he want their hearts? Well, he wanted them. Does God want your money or does he want your life? He wants you. He made you for himself and your heart will be restless until it finds its rest in him. And so you need to see you can hold God at arm's length while being outwardly generous. But when you really give yourself over to him, when you don't hold anything back from him, you will find in him all that you need. You'll have everything that you need to serve him. And that will lead to true generosity. Let me ask, and let me give you a moment to think, is there something that you are holding back? It could be money, it could be your time, it could be relationships, it could be worship. It could be that you're holding on to a grudge and you know God calls you to forgive and to let go, but you just don't want to. Is there anything you're holding back from God? Romans 12.1 calls us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And that includes every part of who we are. But is there some part of your life that you are keeping back 
for your own? Are you able to say, like John Calvin, my heart I offer you, Lord, promptly and sincerely? Well, the early church lived in such a way that was so transformed that no one considered any of his possessions his own. And I don't think it was so much that they viewed their possessions belonging to everyone else in the community. They were transformed by God's grace so that they viewed everything that they had as already belonging to God and available for the use of other of God's people. That's what I think we see here. We need to see that in Ananias and Sapphira, God calls us to that kind of generosity and his anger thunders against those who keep as their own what belongs to him. And as we examine our lives, we should see all of us are failings to offer ourselves to the Lord. And that should be a call to us to run to Jesus Christ. He has given us everything that we need. He kept nothing back. We are so greedy and so miserly. We hold back things all the time, thinking that we might need them in the future. Can't let go and trust God because we don't know if God will provide for us. We don't trust him. Well, Jesus kept nothing back. That's the message of the hymn we normally sing at Christmas. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. Thou who wast God beyond all praising, all for love's sake became man. Jesus gave everything for you and for me. So if you know your own heart, if this is one of those sermons that makes you feel uncomfortable because you know that you don't have as generous a heart as you should. That's probably true for every single person in this room. We need to see the generous heart of Jesus Christ for us, that he gave everything, holding nothing back for you. And in him, you have everything that you need. So how can you hold anything back? He calls you to devote to him. He calls you to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So run to Jesus Christ. He will forgive you for all of your sins. He'll forgive you for your hard-heartedness, for your lack of generosity. He'll forgive you for holding things back. But he will transform you by his spirit so that you become more and more generous, more and more like Jesus. Will you join me now as we close in prayer? Our gracious God, we do want to be generous and we do know, as we know our own hearts, that we are not as we should be. But we thank you that Jesus is the one in whom we can put our faith and receive every spiritual blessing and receive your spirit to transform us that we might be fully and wholly devoted to you. So do that work in us, we pray. Do that work in this church. Do you make us generous and cheerful givers because our hearts have already been presented to you and we are no longer holding anything back. We pray for you, by your spirit, to apply these words. In Jesus' name, amen.